I'm up here today to do our annual monthly missionary of the month. And this month, we're getting towards the end of the alphabet. I think we only have three or four more to go. Um, but I think it's been good. And I think I'm learning along with you guys because I research all this to let you guys know. So um, this month is Isaac and Terry Smithia. And um, they are Ohio missionaries. Um, they come from Lima or Lima. How do you say that? Lima, Ohio. And uh, so we... I think 90% of our missionaries are from Ohio, so we started doing um, that. And uh, so we have been supporting them since 1991 when they first started into the missions field. They went to the itineration and language school down at Sincel, which I don't know if it was called Sincel back then. And they, then they went to Uruguay, South America in 1993 after they got all their schooling in. And they've been all over South America since then. They spent the first 20 years in um, the mission in Uruguay and uh, had two children in Uruguay, born there, born there and practically raised there because they were in there for 20 years. And um, there should be a family. Yeah, there's their family picture, their current one. So um, that's Terry. Terry's on the front. And then that's Jason and his wife, Andrea, and their daughter, um, Jasmine. And then this is their daughter, Brianne, on this side. So I thought that was a very nice family picture. And uh, they're pretty close family. So their work centered around um, Bible school ministry for the first 10 years that they were in Uruguay. And then they went to Teen Challenge um, from there. And um, they did a <coughs> church planting. And they, this is the, called the Hope, whoops, I'm sorry, they, the Hope House. They built this Hope House, with, which is a Teen Challenge resource for them and they um they also had i think there's a baptism in there but they were they were working with the teen challenge and the team of guys that they were working with is the next picture yeah there's the team of the fellows that they were working with and so they did a lot of work down there with that and so they um did the baptism and then they were recognized for their 20 years of service in Uruguay and felt like it was time to move on from there. And so they had this 20 years of service special ceremony and um, looks like they're kind of emotional in that second picture. I think they've, they've really got their heart there and that's where they continue to go even, they make trips back there today even. So in April of 2013, then they decided to come back around the estates and they went to, um, work with the uh, fire bible <coughs> does anybody is anybody familiar with the fire bible some of you okay i'll give you the back i'll give you the backstory on it because i happen to have that so the backstory on the fire bible was that it was the full life bible study was the version the vision of a missionary named donald stamps and i'm sorry i don't have his picture but um he was appointed by lauren triplett and while they were serving in brazil they recognized the need in a church for a Bible study written from a Pentecostal perspective. So they began creating a series of notes that were um, accompanying the scriptures through the Bible. And Dawn uh, got a diagnosis of cancer. And through struggling with cancer, he continued and submitted his notes for publishing. And right after he submitted the notes, he passed away. So he was not able to see his vision fulfilled. However, four years later, the 
Assembly of God World missionaries picked up on that, and they saw the potential for the Bible to be used around the world. So they assigned the project to Life Publishers, which is, is it in Missouri? Do you know? We don't know. It's, it's part of the Assembly of God uh, companies. And um, so now, they've, since they took over, they've produced over 65 languages, and they are, um, they are, uh, have at least 12 to 15 new editions in the process. So it was finally named the Fire Bible in 1998. So back to Terry and Isaac, oh, and there's the different ones. Back to Terry and Isaac, Isaac coordinated the translation or the study notes and the commentaries for the Nepal Fire Bible, as well as other translations, which you see here that he's giving out the Spanish and the French and the port Portuguese. So he worked, uh, they worked with that for the next six years. And then in January, 2020, they went back to church planning back in the Latin American Caribbean, which I will continue to say LAC because that's a little easier. <laughs> so they, they, were, they went down and they were teaching in El Salvador and um, they were leading a missionary church planners boot camp in Costa Rica and then um, they were teaching, and he also leads a group of pastors in uh, Argentina to minister at a church plant campaign. And then he teaches masters, I gotta write, I gotta read this, and teaching masters level pastoral counseling all over the LAC. And that's a graduating class um, that he had taught. So he's a pretty busy guy. And, um, so for the next, for the he was he was giving me a recap of the the past twelve months, and they just returned from teaching in El Salvador in the boot camp, and then in the middle of February they'll be leading a group of pastors in Argentina to, to another church camp plant campaign, and then they're going to finish with the missionary church planners dialogue in Managua, Nicaragua, and then in April they're going back to Nepal to teach at a church planners training center, and then they're going to return to a trip to Uruguay to dedicate one of their latest churches. And he, t he put in parentheses beside that when he wrote that to me, deep breath. <laughs> and um, this guy is 70 years old and he's still going strong on this stuff. I was amazed at how much they are doing. And he wanted to relay to us that they could not do any of this without the great people at Rogers. And our prayers and support have kept them going as we supported them for the past 33 years and continue to carry them forward. And he wanted to relay that. Oh, and if that's not enough, he's written four books in the meantime, too. And he, uh, his most popular one is called The Barnabas Way, and he has that in both English and Spanish. And then he also wrote a book called A Promise Kept to Be Kept and then Songs of the Shepherd King. So he's, uh, he's a very busy guy. <laughs> so I have, I have a couple of funny pictures. This is um, kind of unrelated but, uh, but related. Um, Michael Mills is a missionary from Tennessee that he works with, and he was um, eating a barbecue armadillo. And who would have known? I've never ever heard. I never ever heard. No, that's an armadillo. That's what I thought too. It was a big bun until I read that. But he's a missionary that works with Isaac down there. So I just had. To, I was amazed with that. So I just had to share that with you guys. <laughs> and then um, on the the right. Our right is Isaac, and he is eating a guinea pig. 
which is a delicacy in Uruguay. So I just thought that was weird, but um, I like the the uh, girl on the beside him. I like her face when he's holding that up because I'm like, guinea pig? Oh my. So since Uruguay is their heart and they come and go there all the time, even though they're not there permanently, I did find some fun facts about Uruguay. So I just want to end with those. So Uruguay has the longest national anthem in the world. It has 11 verses, 105 bars of music, and it lasts around six minutes to sing it. <laughs> Thankful for ours, huh? <laughs> um, the first they were, Uruguay was the first country to legalize marijuana for recreational use. Residents are allowed to grow up to six plants a year for their personal use. So they are the ones that started this whole mess. So there are um, four cows to every human in Uruguay. The cow population is approximately 12 million, and the human population in Uruguay is 3 million. So they're all about their beef up there, and they, they eat a lot of beef, and that they, yeah, that's their thing. So they're also uh, the most non-religious um, country and home to many atheists. And they've even renamed Christmas to Family Day, and they renamed Holy Week to Tourism Week. So they are very anti-Christ there, and um, very good place to put our missionaries, isn't it? So <coughs> they need a lot of they need a lot of them down there. And the last one is um, I think it's pronounced Noki, Ganachi or Noki. Noki Day is celebrated on the last day of every single month in Uruguay. It's their thing. So, so anyway, okay, so let's, um, let's pray for Terry and Isaac, and uh, then I'll pass it over to Pastor Ken. Lord, we just thank you for this time with, that we can learn about our missionaries and know what they're doing, Father, and we just thank you that they can do so many things that we can't even imagine thinking about doing, and we just thank you for them and how they're getting into the countries that need it the most. Lord, we just pray for their hearts, Lord, and we pray for their stam stamina. We just pray that you just keep them going. Lord, I pray that they continue to get the support they need, and we pray that you just bless them with an overabundance of blessings, Father. Lord, be with them as they go about their days and, and just help prepare the hearts ahead of them, Lord, to reach to you, Father, we pray. We thank you for Isaac and Terry, and we just bless, pray that you bless them in your name. Amen. Oh, there's a, there's a um, newsletter out there, too, out on the thing, if you want to be reminded to pray for them all week. So. Amen. That was, a, that was a good missionary presentation, Connie. Thank you for that. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you could open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And uh, while you're turning there... Um, it was interesting that we talked about the Full Life Study Bible and the, how it, trans, or it transformed into the Fire Bible. Uh, sitting two seats away from me at Central Bible College in our assigned seats in chapel uh, was a young man, uh, Todd Stamps. And Todd Stamps was the son of Donald Stamps. And so I, Jane and I became good friends with Todd and his wife Leslie and all of that. And uh, that just brought back some fond memories because I was, we were youth pastoring in Zion, Illinois, and they were just two towns south of us in Mundelein, I think, 
or Waukegan, somewhere in there. Anyway, um, anyway, so we got to know them at Bible college, and we got to know them out, uh, out as youth pastors and all of that. And I was joking. I'm like, man, Todd, did your, when your dad wrote all of and compiled all of the notes and everything for the Full Life Study Bible, I'm like, do you get a residual? Do you get a kickback from that? Because this thing has sold millions of copies. I mean, it is all over the globe. I'm like, Todd, man, we could retire on this and all of that stuff. And so I was talking with Todd, and he's like, no, that's not how it works. What they did was um, every profit that, that is made from a sell, a sell of that Bible goes back into translating it into a new language. And so it, there's never any profit from that. And uh, it's gone worldwide, and so all the money that's raised goes back into the project to get the gospel out even further. And so I just wanted to pass that along because I thought that was an extra added feature to, uh, to the Fire Bible. Or the, It started out as the Full Life Study Bible. I have a copy of the Full Life Study Bible on my bookshelf. And, uh, and it was so neat um, because of its Pentecostal note and distinctives, they put a little fire symbol on that. Well, overseas, Pentecost was growing so much that they, they just associated the Full Life Study Bible with what God was doing, and so they started calling it the Fire Bible. Everybody, they didn't want, they didn't want the, those other versions. They wanted the, the one with the fire symbol on it because that was the Pentecostal version, you know, and so it just, you know, just came up with the nickname Fire Bible, and here we have it today, the, the Fire Bible. So, uh, so I'll tell you what, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 today, and I have a little bumper video that we normally play, but I think for the sake of time, we'll just skip it today. Um, but oh, do you guys want to see it? You guys like car crashes? Oh, <laughs> see, I have trained you guys. This is my congregation. That's what I'm talking about. Brock, do we have that queued up? Can we play that then? All right, well, now we can begin. I guess now we're ready, right? That's a, that is a good video. I do like it, too. And, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I mean, who can preach without some good car crashes before the sermon, right? I guess. So, so that's what we've come to. So we're going to be at 1 Corinthians 6, and we're continuing our series on guardrails. And just to catch you up, maybe if you haven't been here or you're catching us on our podcast, uh, guardrails uh, are, is a system designed to keep uh, vehicles moving in a safe direction to keep them going one direction and to keep them from straying into uh, problematic areas like cliffs or lakes or rivers and stuff like that. We understood that guardrails do two things. They direct us, they keep us in the flow of traffic and they keep us going the right direction, but they also protect us. So guardrails direct and they protect. And we understood that the road is not the only place that we need guardrails. If we put guardrails into our current lives, then that will uh, save us from future regrets. And so if we learn to live within the boundaries, then we don't have to deal with residual uh, regrets down the road. We understand, too, that guardrails are always placed in the safety zone. They're never placed in the danger zone. Why? Because if guardrails are in the danger zone, it's too late. We need to place guardrails in the safe zone of our lives to keep us from going over to the danger zone. Now, is it possible to get as close as you can to the guardrail and lean over? You know, I guess, but that guardrail is going to keep you safe in that safe zone and free from injury, free from harm. 
And so we understood that guardrails have to go there. And uh, then lastly, we understood that we have to determine to put up guardrails in our own lives. That God's not going to do it for us, that you and I have to put up guard. We have to decide that we're going to put up a guardrail to save us from future harm or uh, future danger. Um, but we allow the Holy Spirit to tell us where we need to set up those guardrails, where we need to put those safety measures so that we don't go off. And so we looked at the idea of guardrails. Uh, last week we looked at uh, maybe the, the very first thing that Christians, I, I think oftentimes we fall short in, and that is our peer relationships, our friends, and we don't set up proper guardrails in our peer-to-peer -peer relationships or in our friend relationships. And because of that, oftentimes we let our guards down and our, our friends and our peer groups oftentimes drag us back down into worldly things. And so while we don't ever want to unfriend anybody, we do ask that sometimes we need to set up guardrails with certain relationships and certain people, and that helps keep us focused, moving in a direction that God wants us to move. It makes practical sense. And so today, uh, we are going to literally double down on this friends idea. And we're not talking about friends today, but we are talking about friends with benefits. All right, so today we're going to talk about sex. So if you are younger in the room, I guess, <laughs> maybe you're younger in heart, <laughs> younger in spirit, uh, uh, maybe, maybe if you're a child, maybe uh, Kids Church is a better option today for the rest of us. Uh, this is something that we all deal with. We all deal with these issues. Um, once there was this lady, and she lived next door to a family that had a little boy, and the little boy was always in trouble. The little boy was kind of a Dennis the Menace type of kid, always ornery, always something. And so one day, mom and dad were in a pinch, and they asked the next door lady if she could come over and watch the young boy for just a few hours. Well, she didn't want to do it because he was a little problematic, but she reluctantly agreed. And so she went over and she began watching the boy. Uh, and wouldn't you know that he got into a little bit of trouble. And so the boy got in trouble. So what she had to do, she put him in timeout. So she said, here, you sit in this chair and don't move out of this chair um, until I come back to get you. And she went in the other room and started doing some chores or, or whatever. And she'd come back a little bit later. And she did not realize that while she was gone, while the boy was in the chair, that her purse was sitting right next to the chair. And so the young boy decided that he would go through the purse and gather information on his arch nemesis, you know, kind of a recon thing. And so he went through her purse, and he was snooping through, and he found her driver's license. And so when she came back into the room, the young boy was like, I want you to know that I did a little homework, and I know everything there is about you. And so she's like, oh, yeah, what do you know? It's like, well, I know how much you weigh. I know right here you weigh 175 pounds. And I know how old you are. You are 52 years old. And then she said, or he said, he said, I said, I also want, he said, I also know um, why you've never had kids in your life. Now that sparked her interest. And she said, well, how come I've never had kids in my life? And he said, well, it says right here on your license that you got an F in sex. <laughs> <laughs> I 
right? And so today I want to talk about getting an F in sex a little bit. Uh, because I think that we can look at our world today and we can look at all of the infidelity that's going on. We can look at all of the moral failures, all of the sex that's happening outside of the guardrails of marriage that God instituted. Um, and we can even look at more sinister or more deviant acts. We could look at uh, sex trafficking or sexual abuse, or we could look at rape and all of things. And we could definitely like gauge the world and say that the world is getting an F in sex, right? I think, I think we're doing a pretty poor job. Now, according to a recent survey done by, uh, by the Gospel Coalition, they have done research and they said half of all US, United States self-proclaimed Christians believe that there is nothing wrong with casual sex. All right, so half of all U.S. self-proclaimed Christians believe there's nothing wrong with casual sex. So I would say that Christians, as well as Americans, are a lot like that babysitter. I think we're all getting an F in sex. <laughs> I think we could do better. And so today I want to look at God's standards, and I want to help move us from getting an F to getting an A. I would like to have an A in sex. And if you pay attention a little bit more, right, you could get an A+. Plus. Is this too much? <laughs> My wife is like, this is too much. <laughs> All right, let's get to the Bible, folks. This is going south. Uh, this, is, this, is, um, this, is, this is dropping to the bottom of the ocean faster than Jane trying to remember the 49ers. <laughs> right? Uh, so today, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and uh, I'm going to read a passage of scripture that Paul is writing, and then uh, we'll, we'll read it in its entirety, then we'll come back and kind of dissect it. Um, so I want to start reading at 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Uh, it'll be on the screen behind me if uh, you did not bring your Bibles. Uh, it says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And so today we're going to look at Four approaches from 1 Corinthians uh, that will help us honor God with our bodies. These four approaches will help you go from an F to an A, maybe even A+. And the first approach that I want to talk to you today about is understanding the right response to sexual temptation. We have to understand the right response. How are, you, how are you and I supposed to respond to sexual temptation? How are we to respond to the sex-crazed society that we live in? See, something changes in our bodies around the, the adolescent years when we hit puberty, and it's never, ever the same. Our bodies are never the same. Um, uh, we have urges and desires, uh, and and as we get older, it may slow down, it may take a break, but it never goes away. 
we're going to have to deal with this the rest of our lives. Um, so as humans, you and I are forced to deal with these desires and these urges. And our world tells us how we should deal with them. Right? The world paints a very painted line, not a guardrail, but the world basically says, you and I are humans, we have these desires, we have these urges, and it is okay to gratify those urges and those desires in any way that you see fit, unless it hurts somebody else. If it hurts somebody else, therefore, that is the, the line that can't be crossed. So you are free to fall in love with a telephone pole if that is your deal or whatever. The world has crazy ideas. But the Bible sets a completely different standard than the world does for us. The Bible tells us that, or that sex is best wielded, it's best used. It was created to be used within the guardrails of marriage. And so how, in you, how are you and I supposed to act? How are we supposed to respond to sexual temptation? God knows that you and I are not supposed to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with sexual temptation. Like we're not supposed to climb into the UFC cage and go toe-to-toe -to -toe with it. Jesus says this in Matthew 5.28. He says, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus is saying that sometimes we fail not because of the action. We've already failed because of our mind. We've allowed our mind to think on these things and our mind to entertain these ideas and our mind to entertain these uh, desires or these fantasies or whatever. We fail not because we engage uh, in a physical act, we fail because our brains think about it. And so this is loaded because we are inundated in our world with a world that targets our brains. They target the way that we think. And we have sexual imagery that is being fed, that we're being fed a steady diet of in our world. So how do we deal with these things? How do we deal with sexual imagery? How do we deal with sexual temptation? It's in the books that we read. It's in the movies that we watch. It's in the TV shows that we binge. How are you and I supposed to respond to this? And Paul starts out in verse 18, and he says this. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from it. Run away from it. Put the pedal to the metal and get on out of there. That is the proper response, to put as much distance between the temptation and you as possible. Paul says we are to flee from it. See, when you're tempted sexually, you have a potential ticking time bomb that is in front of you. And it is stupid to sit in front of it and try to defuse it. The best thing to do would be to run away. Flee, get as far away from it as possible. It's almost like somebody throws a grenade at you and you stand around trying to look for the pin to put the pin back in it so it won't go off, right? It's better just to hightail it on out of there 
right? That is a better response. This is nothing new in the Bible. Uh, this has been the preferred mechanism of dealing with sexual temptation since the beginning. If you remember back to Genesis, Genesis chapter 39, this was how Joseph dealt with Potiphar's wife. And I want to, uh, you guys know the story, but I just want to refresh us a little bit. Uh, and I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 39, starting at verse 6. It says, now Joseph was well built and handsome. So I'm assuming that he looks a lot like me. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he's entrusted to my care. No one in this uh, no one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. Now, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And, and, and I want to pause here just to make a quick note. But I find that very, very interesting, church, that there is a sexual temptation that is happening. This woman um, is propositioning uh, Joseph to enter into an adulterous relationship and he doesn't say that if I did I would be sinning against you or sinning against uh, my master he says no how could I do this because I will be sinning against God and that is what happens when you and I fall into sexual temptation we don't think it hurts anybody else or we don't think it hurts the other person but what it does is it hurts God we are sinning in our relationship with him. Joseph identified that. Uh, verse 10. And though he spoke to Joseph, I'm sorry, and though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. Now, that phrase, even be with her, is important, church. That is a guardrail that Joseph has set up in his life. All right? He says, here is this temptation. She's coming at me day after day, so what am I going to do? I am going to refuse to be with her. Friends, this is a good guardrail. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. This is the Billy Graham role, right? We refuse to be with or even around that type of temptation. Uh, verse 11, one day he went into the house to attend his duties. Uh, none of the household servants was inside. He, I think he smelled a trap from, from that moment. She caught him by the cloak and said, come to bed with me, but he left his cloak in her hand and he ran out of the house. He ran out of the house. So Joseph fled the situation. He hightailed it out of there. He, he put the metal to the uh, pedal to the metal, got out of there. And this is the exact thing that Paul is referencing when he's talking to the Corinthian church. Remember the Corinthian church was steepened in Roman culture. And so the Corinthian church was uh, falling into sexual morality. And Paul had a surefire, can't miss, uh, foolproof defense mechanism firmly entrenched in this ideolo ideology of fleeing. Paul says, flee, get away from it, flee sexual immorality. He would later pass this advice on to a young minister, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 2.22. Reading from the New Living Translation, Paul says to young Timothy, run from anything that stimulates youthful lust. We're to run away from it. We're to get away from it. 
this is um, rotting away. Let me tell you this. This is what God wants you to do in your life. When you are faced with sexual temptation, God wants you to run and to flee from it. But it's not only what God wants for you. All right? This is the preferred mechanism that husbands want for our wives. When our wives are faced with sexual temptation, we want them to run from it. This is what wives want their husbands to do when faced with sexual temptation. This is what fathers want their daughters and their sons to do when they're faced with sexual temptation. This is what parents want their future uh, ki their kids' spouses or kids' dates. We want them to flee. Fleeing is a foolproof way of getting um, around and dealing with sexual temptation. And so as you and I strive to live pure in a, in a world where we're inundated with sexual temptation, we have to remember to flee, to hightail, to get out of there, put the pedal to the metal. This is the best way. But a lot of us don't do that. And a lot of us find ourselves struggling in the moment and struggling in the position because we do not fully understand a second approach. And the second approach I want to talk to you today about is understanding the uniqueness of our sexuality. Understanding the uniqueness of our sexuality. Paul goes on and he says, uh, if we were to read out in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality... All other sin a person commits are outside the body. So Paul says, hey, all other sin is like this, but that's not what sexual sin is like. Sexual sin is its own animal. It's distinctively different than all other sin. It's not like greed. It's not like envy. It's not like lying. It's its own deal. It's its own animal. The other day I was um, at home cooking. I was in the kitchen and I was baking up some armadillos. Um, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I've never had armadillo. I don't, I'm not even sure I want to try that. But uh, I was cooking for the soups uh, luncheon and I was making some uh, chicken and rice soup there. And I don't normally cook soup. This was my first time. But I'm in there and I got the pot going and I'm over here on the cutting board and I'm cutting onions and I'm cutting carrots. And, um, and I have a, a, a knife I'm chopping them with, and I'm doing a pretty good job. I've handled a knife most of my life. I'm pretty good. I know not to cut my fingers off and all of that stuff. Um, but my wife realized how slow this was going, and she says, I have a better way for you to do this. And so she opens up the cabinet under the counter, and she pulls out this unique device that I have never used before called a slicer. And you just put your your vegetable up there and you go up and down and and I'm like oh okay I can handle this this is working and so I'm like boom boom you know and I'm a guy but I'm like dude this is great I can go faster and faster um, well because it was a unique device to me that I have never been used before it only took me about 20 seconds for me to cut the tip of my finger off right now it's healing very nicely there uh, but it still hurts, right? And one day feeling might come back, you know? But, and, and I promise you this, I contained the whole thing. My uh, finger did not get into the soup. That's not what made the soup good, right? 
<laughs> I was like, oh, right now, hey, right now that armadillo is looking pretty good, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, no, no, we could, I contained the situation and all of that, and we stopped it all and all of that stuff. But I guess what I'm saying is, is because this device was unique, it had a unique way of damaging me in a way that, that a knife couldn't or a, another tool could. And that's the same same way we need to think about sex. Because sex is unique, it's not like any other sin. Now sex can damage us in a way that no other sin can damage us. If that makes sense. It makes sense to me. It can uniquely damage us. And that's why Paul is saying that sex is in a category all by itself. It's possible to recover from all sorts of sin, all sorts of failures. You can recover entirely from bankruptcy. You can recover uh, entirely from academics. You can raise your GPA. You can recover from a, a medical thing, from an illness or sickness. But you can almost never get away from the after effects of sexual failure. It resurfaces in our relationships and in our future relationships. There will be reminders in our brains and little synapses will fire in there that will bring up those things. You can try to hide them, but they always seem to find a way into those things. Now, I firmly believe that God heals and God forgives and God can do those things, but there's always going to be some type of a residual, maybe until we get to heaven. And when we sin sexually in a way that is unique, it uniquely damages us, and sometimes the side effects last our entire life. Sometimes it's something we deal with the rest of our life. And so you and I have to get a grip on it. We have to get a grip on our sexuality. We have to understand it's unique, and it can do unique damage to us. And so that's why Paul goes on, and he says this, eight, verse 18, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sin a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Okay, so this is what makes it distinctively different. Because we're just not sinning outside or against something or someone. But we are now sinning against our own body. And this leads me to a third approach is that we have to understand the significance of our body. Understand the significance of our body. This is something I think our world struggles with because we throw our bodies around like they are insignificant. And we show all sorts of parts of our body because we don't value them or we think that the rest of the world wants to see them. Paul says, whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. What does this mean? Well, in order to decipher what this means, I did a little research and I dug all the way back to Proverbs chapter 7. And I want to spend just a little time in Proverbs chapter 7. Proverbs chapter 7, uh, it paints a picture uh, as sexual temptation and it uses this story uh, of a prostitute that is propositioning a young man. And so I want to just pick this up in verse 10. Proverbs 7:10. Then out came a woman to meet him, dressed like a prostitute and with crafty intent. All right, now it doesn't say she was a prostitute, it just says she dressed like a prostitute, which you, you 
Uh, women, you guys have a great way of pointing that out, right? About other women. We, it's in our culture. We see people that are dressed this way. And we're wondering, why do you go out of the house dressed like this, right? This is a normal problem. She's dressed like this. She has crafty intent. Verse 13, she took hold of him, the man, and she kissed him. And with a brazen face, she said this, Come, let's drink deeply of love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. And so there she is throwing a suggestion before the man. Now, at this point in the story, at this point in Proverbs, this is where the man should have had a guardrail. This is where he should have set something up. This is where he should have hightailed it. This is where he should have took Joseph's approach or Paul's approach and fleed the situation. But the man did not have a guardrail. He did not have anything set up. The woman comes in. She looks really good. She's saying a lot of nice, sweet things to me. Uh, she's putting before me an idea that my body is in line with. And so he falls into temptation. And verse 22 says this. All at once he followed her, now pay attention, like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose, till an arrow pierces his liver, like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing that it will cost him his life. All right, now here are three word pictures of the harm and the danger that sexual immorality causes upon a person. And Proverbs is giving us three uh, word images. It's painting a picture of three different scenarios, three different animals. First, there's an ox, and the ox is, um, it has like a rope around its neck, and it's being pulled, it's being led to the slaughter where it will bleed and moan until it dies. And then Proverbs says, no, it's, it's like an ox, but it's also like a deer, and the deer steps into a noose and it's caught in a trap and as it's caught there it struggles to get free but it cannot until it wears itself out until finally just waiting for the hunter to come and to pierce it then lastly there's mention of a wild bird who knew freedom who knew the joys of no restraints in the air but yet was caught up and trapped now makes its home in a cage of bars. And no matter how hard it tries to free itself, it knows that it's trapped. It knows that it's over. So what do these images mean? That means that when we act uh, according to our sexual drive outside of God's guardrails, that we act like animals. And they will actually uh, eventually destroy us. That what starts out tasting like honey turns into bitter poison by the end. In contrast, our world doesn't understand the significance of our bodies. Especially the impact that sexual sin has upon our bodies. The world doesn't understand the significance of their behavior. They don't realize the potential for damage. Or how it impacts their relationship with others. And most importantly, how it doesn't, they don't understand how it impacts their relationship with God. 
Maybe you're here today and this is the first time you're ever hearing a message like this and said, oh yeah, I've, I've heard about the birds and the bees, but I've never heard about this. I've never heard about guardrails. I've never heard about how sexual sin uh, impacts my bodies. I've never heard about the destructiveness of it. Well, if that is you here today, you're not alone because this is the issue that the Corinthian church was dealing with. And Paul is writing them to inform them of the significance and the importance of their bodies. And he says this in verse 19. He says, do you know? Do you know? This is the first part. We have to know this. We have to understand this. There is something out there about sex that we may not know. We act because we do not know the significance of our behavior. We don't know uh, the potential it has for harm and the potential it has for damage within us. We don't know how it will damage our relationship, not just now, but all of our future relationships. We do not understand the impact that sexual immorality has upon our relationship with God. We don't know those things. And so Paul is writing to inform us of those things. Do you not know? And then he says this. Your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. So Paul is moving the argument from consequence to identity. And that's, a, that's, that's, that's what we have to learn to think. See, a lot of times when we think of sexual immorality, we think of it as cause and effect. We think of it as, I do this, and I'm going to face these consequences. And, and, and bad things are going to happen. It's going to damage me in a way. But Paul moves it a step beyond that. And Paul says that, no, it just doesn't impact us on this level, but it impacts the core of us, our identity. It impacts who we are and who we're designed to be. For you and I are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom we receive from God. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's a temple for God to live in. And it shifts, Paul is shifting the argument to our inner core. It's very important to know uh, because the Corinthian church was stipend in Roman practice and Roman culture. And in Roman culture, nothing was sacred. Everything was an overindulgence. For pleasure was the highest uh, part of earth that you could experience. And so nothing was ever off limits. Nothing was ever sacred to them. In fact, they burnt down the temple with, um, you know, without thinking twice. And Paul is saying, you know what? The Romans say this. The Romans say that nothing is sacred. But I am here to tell you that there is something sacred. You are sacred. Your body is sacred. This is sacred, not because of what it is, but because of what it contains. Your body is a temple for the Holy Spirit. Let me phrase it another way. Um, uh, 
I, I have a wallet, and I, I own a wallet. I bring it everywhere with me, and, and my wallet is very important to me. Guys, wallets are very important. Amen? Amen, you're with me. Women, your purses are very important. So Now, I don't know why it's so important. There's never any money in here. <laughs> right <laughs> there's never any money that's what that's what the wallet's designed to do is carry money and there's never any money in it uh and if i were to lose this wallet or i were to steal someone steals this wallet you know what it's not the wallet that's important it's what's inside it that's important because inside it i have all of these things i'm like in fact if you were to ever steal my wallet man please Keep the wallet, keep the money, I don't care. If you could just return like my driver's license, my social security card, my debit cards, those type of things, you know. Um, maybe uh, I don't have a picture. Um, yeah, I don't have any pictures of my family in here. Those are all on my phone. But um, I have gift cards in here. I have my preacher's card. I got my AAA card. But, but, it, but what I'm saying here, church, is that it's not necessarily the container that is important, but it's what it contains that's important. It's what's on the inside that's important. And that's what Paul is saying. He said it's not just our bodies. Our bodies all look similar. We're all the same. We all have, you know, ten fingers and ten toes and all of that. We're all similar. But it's not that that's important. It's what's on the inside. And God's Holy Spirit is on the inside of us. And when we sin against our bodies, we're sinning against this container that houses God's presence. We're sinning against God. Our world treats people like the containers don't care, like the bodies are worthless. Pornography uses people until they're no longer needed, and then it discards them like rubbish. Sex traffickers trick people, manipulate people into thinking um, or using them like product. My heart goes out to millions of kids abused sexually, and they're gratified for a moment, and they cause a lifetime of damage. Our bodies are sacred, not because of what they are or what they look like, but they are sacred because of what they contain, the Holy Spirit of God. I'm going to ask Courtney to come to the piano, and I'm going to start to wrap this up, but I want to give you one more. The Bible says our bodies, <clears throat> that we need, to, we need to understand our response to sexual temptation. We need to flee. We need to understand that sex is unique. It can damage us unlike any other thing. We need to understand that our bodies are valuable because they are temples of the Holy Spirit. Lastly, we need to understand to whom it is that we belong. This is the last thing that Paul says. He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were not your own. You were bought with a price. You're not your own. You're, you're bought with a price. And that's what makes us valuable, church. That's what makes this thing precious. It's not necessarily because of what it is, and we are not valuable just because of what we contain, but we're valuable because who we belong to. 
just four years ago in 2020, a Martin D18 e-guitar became the world's most expensive guitar. And it sold at auction for $9 million. I'd like to own a little bit of that guitar. Now, you can currently purchase this or a similar model at Guitar Center for about $4,000. I looked it up. So why is there this big price gap? I mean, I would be buying them for $4,000 and selling them for $9 million all day long. Right? How many's in on my business plan? Right? I like that business plan. Um, how, how come it's worth so much? Well, this guitar was priceless, not because of what it was, but because of who owned it. It was owned by Kurt Cobain, the lead singer of Nirvana, who used it um, when he famously was featured in 1993 on MTV Unplugged concert. And I tell you that story just because the value of that guitar was determined by who owned it. And I want you to know that's true of you and I. Our value is determined not because of what we look like or, or if we work out or we don't work out or if we have hair or don't. We're, we're valuable because of who we belong to. And Paul puts that right in this, um, right in this conversation about sexual temptation. And half the problem that our world doesn't do good with sexual temptation and we get an F in sex is because we don't value ourselves the way that God values us. And we think that we're worthless. And if you fall into sexual temptation, that is the poison that it will feed you. That you're worthless or you're no good or you've messed up and now you're used goods or used damage. But Paul doesn't look at it like that. Paul says, you know what? You're not valuable because of all of these other variables. You're valuable because of ownership. And God purchased you at a great price. His son, Jesus, who died on a cross. You're worth that much. And so as a church, you and I, we fail just like the world fails. We sometimes get it wrong when we're dealing with sexual issues and sexual temptation. Some of us are currently in a situation where we're failing right now. We're failing not because of what we're doing, we're failing because of what we think. We're failing because of what we let in. We're failing because of what we allow into our minds through the TV or through our movies or through what we read. We're failing in those areas because of what we engage in on the internet. Some of us here are flirting beyond that. We're flirting with disaster. Some of us are in a relationship with somebody at work and there's barriers that are being crossed and there's flirting that's going on. I want you to know that the guardrail isn't stopping your relationship at flirting. Your guardrail is fleeing. When you're tempted sexually, you have to understand the proper way to defend against it. It's not to stand there and try to put the pin back in the grenade. 
your defense mechanism is to flee. Hightail it. Pedal to the metal. You have to understand that sexual sin is unique and it has a unique way of damaging you. You have to understand the importance and significance of your body. That God's spirit lives inside of you. And you are valuable not because of who you are, but because you were bought with a price. You belong to God. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me, church? Because in this moment, the Holy Spirit might be speaking to you today. And I want to bring this to a point of, of challenge and a point where we reciprocate what the Lord has spoken to us. And maybe you're here today and you say, man, I have not been perfect in this area. This has been an area that I've struggled with and I can't get victory over it. You know what? The Lord is speaking to you right now where you need to put a guardrail. The Holy Spirit says, you know what? You've been failing in this area for a long time. This is where you need a guardrail. Would you today purpose in your heart that you're going to leave this place with a new guardrail in your life? Maybe it's a guardrail around the internet. Maybe you say, I, I can't be trusted on the internet. Maybe you need to move your computer into a visible place in the living room or the family room. Maybe you need to, to get a, uh, a watch program to help you. Maybe it's, it's in what's on TV or it's what's in the movies or the books where you, maybe we need to stop, maybe we need to cancel our Netflix subscription. Maybe we, we need to not go to the movie. Maybe we need to put these barriers in place. Maybe it's a relationship at work where we're saying, you know what, I need to put a boundary there. I can't be around that person. And maybe our work relationship forces us to interact. That's okay. Maybe I just need to do it in a way that's safe. Maybe I need to allow my spouse to know exactly what's going on to know where I'm at at all times. Today I'm not going to embarrass anyone by having you lift a hand or come forward or nothing like that. But I do want to take care of business. Because if you're here today in this place, and maybe you've been poor at this, I want you to know first, that the Lord forgives. There is nothing that the Lord can't do in your life. And when the Lord forgives us, it's as far as the east is from the west. There is forgiveness. There is a healing process that can begin. And maybe you're here today and you need to experience that. Let a healing begin. God, today I know that you're speaking to hearts. And Lord, I know that most of us in this room are not perfect, for we are human. And we live in a culture that feeds us a steady diet of sexual temptation. And if we even steer clear of it on internet and TVs and movies, we're going to still see it on billboards and advertisements. It's just inescapable. Lord, help us to set proper guardrails and guidelines in our life. 
God, strengthen us today. God, I pray for everyone in this place where the enemy has come in and beaten us up. And the enemy has been like this woman in Proverbs chapter 7 who speaks nice things but then leads us to destruction. And the enemy tells us that we're no good and that we're used and it's really damaged us on the inside. Maybe it's something that was even out of our control. Maybe something that happened to us as a kid or a child. But yet it still weighs on us. God, help us to find our identity in what we contain. God, that your Holy Spirit lives in us. And help us find identity in who we are, that we belong to you, that we are your child, and we have, we have great value. We are priceless in your sight. Help us to not buy into the world that we're insignificant, that we don't count, that we're just one of nine billion that we're used and discarded. That's the way of the world. Help us to not buy into that. So Lord, today my heart is this. God, let the healing begin. God, let us do right from this moment forward. Let us put boundaries in place that keep us straight and narrow. Now, Lord, I pray today that you would just allow your Holy Spirit to do a work that that, that no man can do. Bring healing, bring direction, bring protection. Lord, I pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Church, I want to um, just uh, give you one last idea, and I just jotted this down, but I wanted to share it. Imagine with me for just a moment that if we get this right. Imagine with me, if, if, if not, not the world, but just the church. Imagine with me if just the church went from an F to getting an A. Imagine with me if we got this right and we set up guardrails. There would be less failed relationships. There would be less children being raised by single parents. There would be less children being raised by grandparents. There would be less children in foster programs, in foster care. There would be less women and children being trafficked worldwide. There'd be less domestic violence. There would be less rape. There'd be less sexual abuse. There would be less unwanted pregnancies. There would be less abortions. And the list goes on and on and on and on. If you and I can get this right, we could change the world. So, Lord, today, help us live this. Help us live this, and I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Church, go in God's grace today. God bless you. Remember, there's uh, tax statements in the back. You can pick yours up. Uh, come back next week for Super Bowl Sunday. What is it, Jersey Day? Right? We're all wearing Chicago Bears jerseys to church day. Right? So it's going to be good. Uh, hey, remember our chili cook-off, all that coming up. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful day.